First of all, I just wanted to say hi. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. How are you doing? I am doing super. As you know, I was in Tokyo last week. Right. Good trip. It was a super great trip, actually. I don't, I don't particularly like the cold anymore. I think I realized that. Two degrees is probably, <laughs> is probably 25 degrees too cold for me. Do you even have a winter coat? Well, I do because I moved from Tokyo. So, of course, right before I left, I bought this really fancy down coat and I had this other really fancy, fancy coat. And it turns out I was wearing the same – not that it matters. I think it's actually funny because today I would never buy this. But I was wearing the same Prada jacket as another guy at the meeting. Hmm. He was way happier about it than I was. I was more embarrassed. <laughs> I found the whole thing kind of humorous actually. Well, there you go. So um, you had a good trip to Tokyo. You were here. You're back now in Bangkok. I'm back in Bangkok. And it was kind of funny because in my mind, today's call was supposed to be two hours later than it actually was. All right. Yeah, in my mind, I just planned for this to be at 9 o'clock at night as opposed to 7 o'clock. <laughs> because last week when we did it, we did it when I was in Tokyo. And I just had set it in my calendar for 9 o'clock for some reason. Well, we're rolling now. <laughs> what are we talking about today, Michael? We are. So I wanted to talk about two things really today, and they're kind of related, and they, they, they arose at the same time. Um, and, and one of them is just like talking about entrepreneurs with vision. These are real – these are kids that like – they want to build something for a reason. Mm. You know, I'm sure like that this has ha this happened in the United States, and but it seems to me that some people are just like building something just to make money. But there's this whole concept out here of – you know, socially responsible. And I, I don't like that word. I don't like that SR, you know, corporate social responsibility. But these kids really care about building something that's going to have um, longevity and also building something for a purpose. They also expect to make a profit, by the way. They want to be very profitable. And they want to use this opportunity for profit to do something really, really good. And I guess in the context of um, – you know, you do realize in, in, in 15 years people will talk about a Trumpian slip. Right. <laughs> As opposed, it's going to replace Freudian slip where everything Freud said is, re is related to sex and everything Trump says is related to something being mean. So in an effort not to have a Trumpian slip, these kids really want to build something that's, I don't want to say nice because it makes them sound weak. They're definitely not weak. They're very committed and convicted, but they want to build something that has a purpose. Right. So and what actually, are we talking about? We're talking about well, so we're talking we're talking about the difference between entrepreneurs in Southeast Asia that want to build something for the region that has a purpose and venture capitalists that really just want to run them over. Right, yeah. So I, I can talk a lot about, and this is actually a little bit of follow-up from something we talked about a few weeks ago, right? I talked about the guys at Social C, and, and maybe I'm thinking about this because I met with them a few times this week. And also because I'm sure I mentioned this to you, but I also, besides the mentoring that I do, I also take about three to five times a year I try to help some companies raise money. So I'm dealing I'm dealing on what's now commonly called both sides of the table. And it's really interesting to me as an investor myself to sit in the middle and make introductions to people. And the people to whom I introduce them generally know that I'm also an investor, that I'm also a shareholder in, you know, while we've made our mistakes, we've also had some very successful companies. They understand that I see both sides of this. And they also know that I do podcasting and that there's a part of me that does this in the context of trying to start a company too. So they should understand like the full rounded person to whom they're speaking and yet they commonly forget. And I think this has to do with, I want to say the immaturity, and this is something that I work on on a daily basis and I'm sure you do as well. But I really want to talk about the context of people really trying to do something with what I'll call a vision, commitment and a mission as well, right? right? And that mission is they, they want things to be collaborative, right? The pie out here, we talk about it a lot. It, there's not, it's not like in Europe and the United States where the pie is like a certain size and everyone's trying to take a little piece of it while taking a piece away from somebody else. The pie out here, the size is unknown. And as from its current size, it's going to grow and nobody really knows how big it's going to get. So when you take something, you're not really taking it away from somebody else. You're kind of just walking into, mo in most cases, a green field and building something that nobody else has considered and even if you're using a model that other people have used in the past, you're still building it into into a region where there's very little exists and your <clears throat> excuse me, and your ability to build something big is huge. Sure. And the it turns out that I guess the bit is a little bit flipped. 
between what goes on here, and I think that's what makes this interesting, and what goes on in the United States. Entrepreneurs in the United States are sought after. They're the rock stars. And I think the venture capitalists see themselves, at least there, as people that are facilitating the building of somebody's dream. And there's so much competition to get the right deal that you end up having the entrepreneurs being, in some cases, really pompous and a little bit um, entitled to a certain extent. Right. And, and what we see out here is really, is really the opposite. And we can talk in a little bit about what you see in Japan, but, but I, I think it's kind of the same as it is here in the sense that because the ecosystem is a little less developed, and I think that's being generous, but because it's less mature, the venture capitalists or the people with the money actually have that sense of entitlement as opposed to the entrepreneurs who really are out there trying to build something interesting and big. Mm -hmm. So this is just one example about it. And I was talking, like I said, today's what, Thursday, I think, and I was talking to these guys all week. They're really in the, in the process of building something that they think is, is, is new and interesting and it's built around collaboration. So listen to the terminology that they use, right? So who, which guys are these, Michael? These are Social C. Okay, right. Yeah, Social C. And Social C is interesting because it's kind of the archetypical company that gets built in the region. Um, and that is you've got a group of French guys. So the head developer's French, the guy with the vision's French, and the guy who runs the CFO, the guy who's the CFO is also French. None of them knew each other before they got to Thailand. Um, but the communities here kind of end up, I guess it's almost like it's collegial in a way. Mm. Like the Norwegians will hang out with each other. The French will hang out with each other. The Americans will hang out with each other. And what they find out is that a lot of their interests are the same. And their ability to work together, I guess, because they've got a culture that's similar um, or at least familiar, allows them to work together more easily. And then they add a, a group of Thai people to the team. And for some reason, there's always a Japanese person looming around as well. Right. But you get this really interesting team built on um, like on a country-by-country country basis in a country that's not their own. So Social C is a company run by a, a guy named Jérôme Le Carreau. And um, he's recently added Jeffrey, whose last name I don't know off the top of my head, and, and Max as well. These are all French guys. And they're trying to build this business here. And frankly, none of them are inexperienced. Like Jeffrey just moved here from New Zealand. He's had five years of being like a CFO for the French, for a subsidiary of a, of a very large French company. Max has um, graduated from one of the top universities in Paris as a with a, you know, a computer science background. And Jerome's been running a company in China for the past 10 years. Um, and quite successfully, I might add, bootstrapped completely, never took an ounce of funding he lives off of that, and he has an idea to build this into something bigger. But for me, the, the, the important thing really for these guys is that they want to build something really collaborative. They want it to have purpose. And one, one of the things they're trying to do, this gets back to the conversation we had a few weeks ago about you know, how people are approaching the combination of human resources in Southeast Asia. He wants to do this globally, but it works particularly well here because in the United States, I guess, nobody really talks, at least not that I know of, about this concept of an MNC, a multinational corporation, because the understanding is that every company in the U.S. is global at some level, whereas there's a bifurcation in Southeast Asia. You have some companies that are uniquely local, right, and you have other companies that are global. So, you know, a lot of the drug companies that are here are, are global drug companies. A lot of the um, – you have Procter & Gamble – and um, Unilever here, these are MNCs, Toyota, these are all multinational corporations. And there's kind of a separation between would you work for, you know, a local company like Channel 3 only broadcast stuff in Thailand or Unilever that has a, a very large Thai presence, but also is part of a, a, a much more global company. And these companies here are trying to hire the best and the brightest people. And what they're finding is that it's hard. And these guys are trying to build something with a purpose. Okay, and that's really the whole point of this conversation. Why does that matter? Because you get them on the phone with a venture capitalist with a sense of entitlement. And this bit will flip again in like a few years. Like I can see it happening already where the VCs are going to be the ones chasing down the entrepreneurs and the entrepreneurs are going to be the ones because this happened in the U.S. as well. The entrepreneurs are going to be the ones that are saying, um, that's okay. You know, we have four dates at this prom and you're fourth in line. But right now the VCs are kind of doing that. 
so it's just interesting to me to see like the the dichotomy between people trying to build something with a purpose and people who really I would say to a certain extent, at least maybe it's because it's so raw in my in my mind from the last few days. But it's almost like they're they're getting in the way, like there's not enough opportunity for them yet. And they're still turning away people that have a real um, avenue towards making money. People that are very experienced, right? So that have built companies already that have a revenue stream already. And they just want to apply all the things that they learned to something bigger. And I, I get this, right? There are really two, two types of companies, right? One is fundable and one isn't. And to be fundable, you've got to be able to provide like a 45 to a 5% return to almost all your investors. I, I understand that completely, right? I see that from my own investments. And other companies, while they'll be profitable, they're not going to provide the types of returns that a venture capital requires. I get that. Okay, and those companies won't get funded by VCs, but maybe will get funded by somebody's family or by some other company. Um, but but what I'm seeing is that it doesn't seem like, in some cases, the venture capitalists are mature enough or have made enough investments that they can understand the difference yet. These guys are really going to make a gigantic difference, and yet they're dismissed out of hand by somebody. And it's just interesting to watch. Like I'm going to keep using these words, right? People with a real mission – have someone literally like stomp on that mission from the get-go without even really paying attention. Now, I was in, like I said, I was in Japan last week, um, and I just wonder from your Japan perspective, and I know you're very well connected there to people that are doing startups as well, what you hear from their experiences with um, you know, trying to raise money, mm. even what you see on your own. Well, I don't know the market as good as you, even though I'm based here in Japan, but I mean, yeah, just I, out of curiosity, yeah. though. I mean, like, go, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I get what you're saying. I think, I don't know how it was sort of in the US, go back one or two generations, whether it was, you know, worse there. And, you know, things have improved in the US, like you talk about that sense of entitlement, that maybe VCs have come down off their perch a little bit and had to sort of see eye to eye with the entrepreneurs. I still think here, I mean, you just get it. We talked about this in a previous episode michael you know going to the events here yeah you know if you want to get a feeling for what it's like to raise money here in japan as a startup just go to one of the startup events and it's you know the the hierarchy is there you know you the business cards and the the suits and the presentations and all that stuff right i mean that that's the whole sort of system of ra raising money here it's that it's in that sort of culture of hierarchy where the vcs sit at the top of the pyramid so, you know, all that sort of culture goes with this sort of thing that the VTs have the entitlement and these these startups, you know, whatever their experience, are really sort of, you know, they're, they're the guys who are having to run around and get these the attention of the VCs. Maybe like it was, go, I don't know what it was like in America a couple of generations ago. Maybe it's like that now in Japan or in Asia. I don't know if things have changed that much in America that now... You know what was once the 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 prerogative of the VC to call the shots now has changed a little bit, right? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I also think it comes with a combination of there's a there's a lack of risk taking as well. In other words, like I've spoken to potential investors, and one of the one of the questions they've asked me was, "How can I be sure I'm going to get my money back? Like, what's the what's in the process for me to get my money back?" And the answer to that is, you're 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 not. Like, you may not That's get your money back, right? Well, yeah, and all investments come with risks, right? Right, and even people that do make seed stage investments, I think, are really concerned that they're not going to get their money back, which is fair. Hmm. But then I would ask the question: Is why are you in the investment business? Because even if you buy, and we we used to see this in Japan when I used to trade in the listed markets, you could buy a listed company in Japan, um, and because they were not one hundred percent forthcoming, and I think it's everywhere in the world, right? I mean, we saw this with. You know, telecommunications companies in the United States in the in the 80s and 90s, and also regional banks in the United States, where they were, you know, not properly, let's say, abiding by the gap laws. So their accounting was was poor, and then sometimes um, obfuscating. And some of these companies, for listed companies, would go bankrupt. Right. And there was no mechanism. I mean, I understand the hierarchy associated with who gets paid first. You know, whether it's bondholders or there. When the listed markets don't get their money back either, 
Um, and definitely in the non-listed market, whenever you make an investment, you have the likelihood of losing your money. Anyway, it just it's it's been something that's really hit home with me. Um, and the, I almost has the, I mean, just out of curiosity, I don't know the market well enough, so maybe you can sort of explain it to me and the listeners as well. I mean, if you were to sure. compare the the well, not just VCs, but the whole investment and funding scene in the US, which is obviously one of the most advanced in the world, with where we are in Japan and Asia. I mean, you know, I guess here in Japan and Asia, there's a lot more institutionalized investment rate. I don't know. Is that the case? Whereas, you know, the US has a lot more angel investment. I don't know. What's the situation? How do they compare them? And how does that sort of also reflect in the kind of startups that get financed? Yeah, so really good question. And, and you took actually one of the words out of my mouth, but I'm going to flip it around and use it in the reverse way. So I think it's much more institutionalized. In other words, there's a real process around it in the United States, which is much more transparent. Hmm. which means that the funds that exist have been around for a long time, so they have a track record. That's first of all. Second of all, they take a lot more risk, and they understand that they understand the risks inherent in doing it. But also, there's a, there's a national, if not very regional, community that exists out there. When I say institutionalized, I mean everybody kind of knows what's going on, and while there is a little bit of inside baseball where the best deals go to the most hmm. prominent venture capitalists, here, it's much more like it must have been like in the 1920s where it's really like an – I think in Southeast Asia, it's more like an, it's more like an old boys club. Right, yeah. Um, in the sense that you know, I'm lucky because I'm kind of on the inside, so I see all the deals. But if you're not on the inside, you're way on the outside. I think it's very – and I think that's normal. At this stage of development in the market, I think if you go back to the 1970s and even the early 80s, you know, there's a reason why all of the venture capitalists in Silicon Valley are on Sand Hill Road. Mm -hmm. yeah. And there's a reason why even some of the new venture capitalists that have started in the last five years will raise money and put their offices in the same building or right down the street from all the old venture capitalists because they're all having lunch together or they have dinner together or they have meetings together in a place that nobody else can see it. So there's a bit of inside baseball there, but it's way more like that here, mm. I think. And that's just, and I think it's just a development stage. In other words, I don't think it's any worse than it than it is, or any more collusive than it might have been in the U.S. or even in Europe in what I'll call the old days. But I think all that stuff kind of fleshes itself out. It's also a lot more kind of male dominated here. But again, I think that's going to change over time as more women get interested in. In the venture capital world, and I think you see the same thing happening, you know, in the in the early to mid '90s and in the early 2000s in the United States. And I think that process is going to get accelerated and happen here. Um, one of the so it's one, and she's really good. One of the most prominent venture capitalists here is a woman named T. Surapongchai, and she used to work with me at Ardent Capital, and now she runs a very. She's one of the two partners at a very large fund here which is called Ventura. And to be fair, they, the fund where she works, very, very professional, very large, um, and like 50% associated with a large institution in corporate here, but the other part of their money actually comes from external investors. So they're kind of on the forefront of the development of the entire ecosystem. And I, and I guess maybe it's more of it, and they're Series A and beyond. So while they do do some seed stage investing, it's not it's not most of their remit, and maybe it's really just down at the seed stage where this kind of little battle takes place between the startups and the um, and the venture capitalists. I mean, Series A by definition is really just to fuel growth, and Series B, right? For a business that's already established, that already has kind of a track record of its own, and is already generating revenue, the Series A really should just say, "We'll take your five to ten million dollars, and we'll just." you know, turbocharge our growth. Right, right. But, but, but I do think it's an interesting question. It's much less institutionalized here. And that doesn't mean that institutions aren't involved. And it may be because it's more corporate venture capital. Whereas in the United States, the original idea was we'll take our own money because we've made a decent amount of money. We know how to run a business and we'll invest in other businesses. So try to give, trying to like give a little bit back. If you go look at the genesis of companies like Sequoia, Kleiner Perkins, and some of the earlier venture capitalists in the United States, a lot of those, and they were men, but a lot of those guys actually had built businesses before, had made a decent amount of money and said, let's fund some other stuff out here that we understand and nobody else is seeing. But if you go back and look at the origin story for companies like Apple 
Oracle, Cisco, right? These were very, very risky companies back in their day. And the people that invested in them, you know, because they were successful, ended up making a lot of money. Um, but all that has kind of fleshed itself out. And I think we'll, we'll see the same thing happen here. It'll be more professional. And it's something that I'm actually working on kind of on a daily basis is trying to teach the entrepreneurs here. And Jerome is the example of this and his team over at Social C, how to get people to understand their commitment to their vision and their mission and why it's important, but also why it's important in the context of how they're going to make money as well. And their idea of trying to get companies that are hiring people and get talents that, that have, that are aligned together, I think it's going to end up being really important. And if you look at against whom they're competing, it's really just a mess. We talked about this in the context of real estate and a little bit like there's a whole lead gen business out here, which is really messy. I don't want to spend time going back and talking about that, but just this tension here between, I'll say, slightly less experienced venture capitalists and again, slightly less experienced um, entrepreneurs and company builders. I think that whole that whole thing kind of fleshes it out as the development of this ecosystem becomes um, a lot bigger and a lot and a lot better. Mm. Very interesting. Thanks. I remember going back a few years now, Michael, and this would be something that you'll probably know a bit about. I remember reading the book E Boys. Which was the um, was the the account of the uh, the guys who started Benchmark, which is one of the Silicon Valley Valley sort of you know leading VC yep. firms in the day, and they they sort of I mean we've mentioned Webvan already, but Webvan aside, you know they were behind sort of some of the biggest names in the Valley, from eBay to everybody else. And I just remember reading that book and being quite surprised when I actually read the book about how active the VC partners were in actually shaping the companies they were involved in. They're actually quite hands-on and giving some pretty good advice. They would help build the teams within the companies. They would, you know, basically be a key member of that team. So in that sense, they were very experienced. And maybe going back to what you're talking about with Sequoia's origins, you know, these are guys who had made their mark in their own respective industries and now are paying back a little bit, right? So right. I mean, how, how's that here in Asia? I mean, do we have that? Because, you know, do we have those kind of experienced people who are really shaping businesses? Or how does it go here? So you bring up actually one of my favorite venture capital companies, and that is Benchmark Capital. And the reason why I like them is because there are only five partners. Those five partners can rotate in and out. So some, when someone resigns, they'll hire another fifth partner. And those five, and right now it's all guys, but those five gentlemen get, like you said, very, very involved in the building of the companies um, in which they invest. Hmm. And we see periodically here a venture capitalist come up and say, what I want to do is I want to build a Silicon Valley style operation where we do get really involved in the day-to-day -day building of these companies. And yet... We don't actually see that happen. So no, I don't think that culture yet exists here. Again, it's something that we work on on a daily basis, right? So I, again, I was sitting with the guys at Social C today, talking to them, and I do spend, one of the reasons why I only deal with really five companies a year, and I like to curate the companies with whom I spend time, is because I want to be able to give them as much attention as I possibly can. And if I'm investing in more than that, or if I'm talking to more than five companies a year, I literally will not have the time to to be able to invest in, in helping them grow their companies in a way that it would be like if, uh, if I actually worked there. Mm. Right, so I spent two hours with those guys today. I spent two hours with another team yesterday. And when we get off this phone, I have another call to make to be able to go talk to another team that I'm helping. And it, the only way to do that is to get involved the same way Benchmark does. And I think the only way to have that happen really is to lead by example. Right. Right. So you, you cannot go out and tell people this is the way to do it. And you have other VCs, right? They say one of the reasons why you join us is because of our – why you let us invest in you, excuse me, is because we can help you – we can connect you to our network and all these other sort of ancillary services that they say they're going to offer. But the reality is that they, they don't have enough partners, first of all. And second of all, they, they, they don't have enough time mm. to help mentor all of the companies in which they invest, Right. So, so yeah, and if you watch, because the flip side of Benchmark is Anderson Horowitz, where they literally hire teams of people, we talked about this already too, to be like the accounting team, the mentoring team, the, um, 
you know, the hiring team as well. And, and that, that, that infrastructure to me takes so much money away from like the core idea of let's just invest money and help build companies. Mm -hmm. And I think the way like if, if I'm going to build a venture capital company, I want to build one that looks like benchmark as well. Five people, that's it. They might have some administrators and some stuff like that, but not entire teams of people that kind of abscond with the human resources, finance, and all the all other right. functions. Because if you're going to build a real company, I think the reality is that you want people that are in that company every single day doing the core functions of that company. And sure, you want to spend time with them as an outsider to guide them and mentor them. But I don't think you want to be prescriptive. It's a really nuanced way to do this. I don't think as a VC you want to tell them, don't do that thing you just said you're going to do. It may be the case that they have a better insight than you on the day-to-day, -day, but you may have a better overall vision of saying – or a better overall picture of what they want to get done based on your own experience of building stuff. You look at the most successful um, investors and they've built things on their own and that's not necessarily building their own company. right? I looked at plenty of the managers – for whom I worked when I was at, you know, a Goldman or a Morgan or even at Macquarie. And one of the things they told me was the best way to get ahead is by building a P&L that didn't already exist. Does that make sense? What do you mean what by that? The, well, so what I mean is, let's say you sit inside a business, create a separate, use that as a platform to create a separate business line hmm. with either A, your existing customers, or a new business in the context of that business that creates a brand new P&L that's not taking money from another right. division in the company, but B, like I talked about earlier, that's not stealing pie from somebody else, mm -hmm. but create a P&L out of nowhere. Find a new product, find a new way to hit up all the clients that you have and have them pay you for another product or another service. If you do that, that was the fastest way to jump levels and get promoted. And if you watch those guys, and I watch them do it now, um, there were ex, you know, Goldman guys, but they're ex hedge fund guys that are going out and creating venture capital companies in Bangladesh, right? In places where most other people won't go. And what they do is they create an, what they do, what they've always done is they created a PL out of nowhere by going out and finding a market gap, filling that gap by helping those people build companies that they already wanted to build, but using their experience that they had from before to help them build those companies. And it, it always ends up being really powerful. And that's what I mean when I say, creating a P&L. And, you know, one of the last guys that I worked for, this guy, Damien, said, you know, he came out of Australia, came into Tokyo, went to Hong Kong, and very quickly got himself promoted into one of the head jobs in New York. And the reason why was because he basically took a business that never existed there and built it into a global business. Mm -hmm. You know, he made 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollar P&L out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's what I mean. And it's the same thing as building a company. He'd be a great mentor to a startup as well. Because he took something, he took nothing and made it into something. And that's what your entrepreneurs are doing, right? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that's what we need as well in the region, isn't it? More of that. I see a lot yeah. of the other stuff, which is the corporate mentoring. We talked about it last week, right? You know, that sort of what they call in Japan, daikigyo, daikigyo, naikigyo, which is sort of like that within large organizations, entrepreneurship type thing, right? Yeah, never going to work, but... Right, exactly. But that's sort of, I think, whether that goes back to that risk-taking or adversity to risk, that's really the only option for a lot of these startups. And I know that we, we have sort of mutual friends in the startup scene in Asia. And, yes. you know, they are sort of in that system. They're in that, I wouldn't call it an accelerator, but, you know, that's the challenge, isn't it? Is that whether or not they can get access to people like you say, like your friend Damien. That's what they need. They need sort of street smarts entrepreneurship, right? Don't they? More than the people who know how to play the game of the big company. And I wonder that how much of that sort of cutting edge street start street smarts entrepreneurship really exists here, or whether it does exist and it just hasn't had its chance to find its voice. That's what we kind of need. And I wonder, you know, those benchmark guys are probably a bit like that. You know, they've got a bit of hustle. You know, that's why they only need five or six of them, right? Because yeah. they're hustlers. They can get out and do it. They can. They can press the flesh, shake the hands, and do all that stuff. That's all you need, really, for those guys. Yeah, and just make a proper introduction and say, look, you know, just do, these three things that you want to do, just do two and a half of them because the last bit of this thing is never going to get you anywhere. This People have been trying to do whatever that one thing is forever, and it's just not going to work. Hmm. But again, they're not being prescriptive necessarily and saying, go do this because if you're really creating a new company, like I don't think you could have told Uber – 
how to build that company. Right. You know, because maybe one of their first in investors might have said to them, you know, whatever you do, don't break the law. <laughs> right, exactly. That, <laughs> that would have worked. Been, that would have been really bad advice. Right. You know, like, make sure you hold the hands of regulators in every city and every country in which you operate. This is really good advice if you're running a beer company in, you know, in Brazil and you're buying a beer company in the Philippines. That's right, probably right, makes right. sense. But if you're running like a, a change everything company like Uber or, or, or some other company, sometimes you have to break the law. Exactly. Because those laws have been in place for 100 years and don't make any sense. They're not protecting anybody except some embedded interest. And I know that's an unpopular thing to say, but I think that's really what happened there. So, yeah, in the case of the guys at Benchmark, is that happening here? Are there street smarts? Again, it's all developing, right? So it's fun to watch and it's fun to be a part of it because if you look at – I mean, again, not to spend too much time talking about myself, but kind of is what it is, you know – Everything that I did in my life was because of having a little bit of street smarts and I'm trying to transfer that to some of these entrepreneurs And again, it gets back to what I started with today You had these entrepreneurs on the phone with venture capitalists and the VC literally was could not have been more dismissive mm -hmm. To the point where I almost wondered whether he was listening. This was over the phone, right? And when it when and when the conversation was finished, I just kept thinking to myself Did they really pay attention to this because the pitch was really good? But the response was just like non-existent. And, and I just wonder, like, we had the same thing when we were raising money for e-commerce three years ago. Yeah. We introduced this to a lot of people. Only a few of them um, bit. And the ones that did have actually ended up making a lot of money. And I think that that's a metaphor for the way investments normally happen anyway, right? Particularly at this stage. The thing is, and the reason why I was thinking about it today, and this is a window actually onto my personality, I guess, is like, you can say no. You can even say, like, that's a really bad idea. But can you say it with a little bit of humanity? Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> that takes practice, though, doesn't it? I, yeah, I just, I don't know. And, I, and again, you know, I don't want to sound like, you know, like I'm doing a psychoanalysis of every one of these entrepreneurs. But these guys have already stuck their neck out, right? They've already they've already committed to something that nobody else has committed to yet And I would just like to see the answer no given to them if it is given With a little bit of um, with a little bit of humanity when I say no all the time But there you know, it's in a way you learn this from your grandparents. It's not what you say that matters, right? It's how you say it. Yeah, and I want to see a little bit of people actually saying something That's really not so nice, but in a way that's a little bit nicer Right, and I, that's a little bit of an uncomfortable conversation for people. But to be fair, I don't really care because what's gonna here's what's gonna happen as the ecosystem continues to mature. You know, one of the other things I like to say is you don't have to be mean to be smart. Yeah. Right, and this is one of the other things that I try to t teach the entrepreneurs, but I also try to kind of convince the venture capitalists of as well. And I do this on a daily basis, right? I'm not stupid. I had a meeting with some people last week and I think that they were surprised by some of the stuff that my partner and I were coming up with, which is fine. Um, but we weren't, and I'm just going to say, we weren't, we weren't mean about it. You know, we did something a little bit innovative, but we weren't like dismissive to the people with whom we were speaking. And I think you can actually be human and still be really successful. And I've seen that in a bunch of different places. Like everybody, excuse my language, but again, you don't have to be an asshole to be successful, right? Right. But they're like the uh, the only good-looking girl in the year with at the prom, right? With a hundred guys knocking on the door. That's kind of where we are. It's just basic supply and demand right now, isn't it? You know, that's the I, problem. Isn't that the problem? I, I guess so. But I mean, isn't it like, you know, what's going to happen when the supply and demand dynamics change? When you right. always have to be aware of the market in which you operate, right? And remember, as a VC, as a pure VC, right? So I was talking to a venture capitalist, another VC yesterday. Okay, had another meeting with another company. These people were extremely nice. I don't think they're going to invest. Well, I don't know that for sure. I mean, the company that we introduced to them, but these were the nicest people in the world. And I'm seeing it begin to fall out this way, actually. Mm. The great thing about these, this team was that it's a principal fund, meaning the man who runs the fund earned a ton of money on his own, worked really hard to do it, and he understands how hard it is to do that. And I've, you know, I've introduced a few things to these guys over the past three or four years, and they're always really generous with their time and really nice people. And that's because they don't have to answer to anybody else. I get it. It's principal, right? So it's their money. Yeah. But after you've gone out and raised money from a bunch of limited partners or LPs, you owe them something. Yeah. 
And the thing you owe them is a return and an explanation for why you're not achieving the return that you quasi promised to them. Right. So what we're seeing now is a lot of the VCs who've raised money and whether they've raised five million dollars or 50 million dollars, I think they're all operating like in fear. You know, that all the confidence that they exuded when they went to raise the money kind of disappears when they actually go to invest that money. It always is there a difference with the LPs here in Asia? I mean, do the LPs in, in America have a bit more uh, sort of a mature attitude to risk? Is that sort of what drives it? Or is it are they still the same world through? I mean, how does it how does it differ here? Yeah, I think I, I actually think that the LPs are just um, they're, they're happy to take risk. I just don't think the people to whom they're allocating their money are as comfortable with that risk as they might be. Oh, I, I think if you I think if you go back to it, because a limited partner, by definition, if they've given their money to you to invest, that alone is a risk, right? Yeah. So I think the people that are actually doing that are not nearly as risk averse as the people to whom they're giving their money. And maybe that's one of the reasons why they're giving it to them. They figure, I'm a little bit more freewheeling than the guy to whom I'm giving my money, so let him be the conservative one. So you're talking about the general partners being the bottleneck here. Yeah, I think the GPs are really the bottleneck because... Because remember, none of them have managed that much money before. So because it's all, I don't like to use the word immature, but because it's in a growth stage, right, where a lot of people are trying to get involved, a lot of them are going to get kind of sussed out and flushed out as time goes on. And you're going to end up with about, you know, 15 or 20 really large players out here again in the same way that you have in the U.S., but now there are more than that, right? And everybody wants to be in this game. So you have a lot of people rushing in, and whenever that happens, um, you know, there's all this enthusiasm and euphoria and then a bunch of people lose money and then it's like very out of favor and then it kind of slowly crawls its way and claws its way higher then it it goes higher than the previous euphoria and then it actually turns into a real business and a real ecosystem and Mm. where i think we're kind of in the first to the first and a half stage of that right now and because of that you see a lot of risk aversion even in people that are being paid to take a lot of risk i don't think the lps mind Right, a real limited partner is a is a woman who's made a ton of money and says, "Here's my million dollars. Right. It's it's losable." Yeah. Right. So yeah, I think from an LP perspective, and the most interesting LPs are those with real foresight, and those are the ones from outside the region that are putting money here. I mean, because those people are taking a gigantic risk. They've got no real good visibility on what's going on here, and they're doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. So for them, it's more like a foothold in the market or is it a sort of a stake or are they just doing it purely for the numbers? No, what they're doing it for is they're doing it to learn. So they're paying right, right. tuition. Yeah. A lot of the first funders, and this is more from an LP side than from a GP side, right? Because the GPs sell themselves as people that know what's going on. I, I think the limited partners go like this. They say, look, I've got a million dollars or $2 million to invest out of my $100 million fortune. And I don't really know what's going on in this region, but everybody tells me that I should know. And the only way to do it, barring moving in and doing it myself, is to get a grub stake in the game. Yeah. And I see this. I was talking to somebody in Japan actually about this. He said, look, we've raised a $10 million fund. We're going to allocate $2 million to a few countries in Southeast Asia. And the returns that we're promising to our investors are, 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 are very small. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is because we're doing it to learn. Yeah. And I think that's a great approach because as you're learning what's going on in the market, it gets back to a concept I like. You're finding out what those market gaps are, and then you can jump in with a with a full book of knowledge, and you can fill those gaps or find somebody to fill those gaps for you. And it means your second round of investment capital is the one that's really going to pay off because you've learned all this stuff over a two or three year period of time. Mm-hmm. Right. So the LPs that are funding that, I think, are really prescient, to be fair. Well, that's a good sign, huh? That's a good sign that there's people are here because they'll bring with them. Once they do get a, a stake in the market and the foothold, they'll bring, they'll bring assets with them. I'm not talking necessarily about financial assets, but they'll bring their, you know, their, their connections, their networks and their knowledge as well. You know, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and having those people committed early is really good, right? Yeah, and that helps professionalize the whole thing because the more of those people that come in and they're really starting to come in, um, the more those people that participate, 
the the faster the whole ecosystem is going to become professional and that's that's really good for someone like I am because that's the goal it's one of the things that we try to do particularly you know on the entrepreneur side as we talked about when we mentor them and we try to help them through the process of building we're trying to make them more professional as well hmm. right because you can you can see in some cases an entrepreneur who's young 23 24 years old get frustrated at the fact that nobody understands their vision but their ability to understand what the right way is to deal with that frustration is limited. That's one of the other things we have to do. I mean, imagine if you had met Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak when they were founding Apple. Mm. Let's just say you were trying to pitch that investment to people and you tried to convince people that everybody was going to have a computer in their house. Mm. Right? I mean, they would have thought you were insane. So in the same way, the GPs in that case got it. Um, but a lot of the investors back then didn't understand that at all. Right. And whether it was, you know, the the Apple guys or the compact guys or the Osborne guys who came from um, from the UK, nobody really understood what was going to happen except those the few people that invested in those companies. And that cycle is starting to repeat itself out here. Right. And one of the things that I deal with every day trying to trying to fix that sort of natural tension that's between the VCs and the startups is how come they don't understand or get my vision? Right. And how come they're not so nice about it when they're telling me that maybe if they even do understand my vision, that my vision's stupid. <laughs> and what do I have to do to control to have self enough self-control so I don't go back to them and say, actually, it's not me, it's you. And the, the, the explanation that I always give is there's no upside for that. And if there's no upside in, in any kind of activity you're going to do, don't do it. It's only downside. No point. Yeah. Before we talk about the surprise for the day. Yes. Let's talk about just one thing. I, I'm just curious about what you were saying. Just one question. Maybe we can spend a minute on it, and then we go into the surprise. Is that go for it? You, I mean, you're talking about startups building businesses here in Asia based out of a real need, and like you talk about social needs and so on. And this mm -hmm. is something we talked about in the past. I know we, we like talking about infrastructure as sort of one of the areas where it's exciting to us, even though it might not be sexy to the you know these these guys who are chasing the, the next big thing. I think that's where the money is and the infrastructure and so on. In the need, where, where the social need, the need for that country and developing and so on. Mm -hmm. And I just look, I mean, I'm curious. I mean, it's the thought that I have, and I I'm wonder your experience in this because you know far more about this than I do, is that you look at places like the US and, you know, wherever there's a sort of a boom industry, it always attracts the talent. You know, like the young guys coming out of business school would always be attracted to this industry. And if you go back... A generation, it would have been investment banking. Yep, or trading. I, I know it because I was there. Yep, right, completely right. Agreed. And maybe before that, it was all the guys in I don't know media, like media and advertising, sixties and seventies, and that kind mm -hmm. of thing. Right? They would have that. All the brains would have gone there because that's sort of like the the biggest, most exciting thing of the time, right? And then it was investment banking, and now we've gone through this dot com thing, right? So, you know, I think I wonder, does that sort of create? this sort of career entrepreneur where I'm seeing these sort of kids who are sort of born out of privileged families or well-educated families. They send their kids to good schools to, you know, we want to get you into Stanford to do a computer engineering degree, you know, and then you're going to go to Stanford. And then after Stanford, you're going to go to, you're going to get a place at this accelerator, all that kind of thing. And then it's sort of, I just wonder if it, you know, entrepreneurship becomes a career, and therefore, the kind of people who then get attracted to this industry aren't the risk takers. You know, they're not born of risk taking families. They're born of families who want to play the game, so to speak. I don't know. It's just a thought that I had and whether that then becomes sort of the undoing of that industry in the long run, because it gets saturated by people who are careerists rather than, you know, the real street smarts risk takers that we talked about earlier. Is that a sort of an oversight or have I overshot there a little bit or is there any sort of risk of that happening in places where there's been a lot of success like the US. No, you've completely nailed it actually. And a lot of the entrepreneurs that we see in a developing region are people that, I mean, what is an entrepreneur need? He needs time and he needs money, right? And for somebody in this region, the likelihood of you, <clears throat> so let's say you, your family has struggled and you get educated. Your mom and your dad are going to want you to work at a multinational corporation where you have a stable income, whether it's whether there's a ton of growth there or not for you, is really they're indifferent to it because they've worked really hard to get you to a point where you can have a stability that they didn't have. Hmm. Okay. But because you're talking about economies where wealth distribution is highly bifurcated, 
right? What you end up seeing is the very, very wealthiest kids say, I can work in my dad's printing factory or in my mother's beer factory, or I can convince them to give me a little bit of money and again, create my own P&L because my downside is really limited and my upside is endless if I succeed. So a lot of the entrepreneurs are not strugglers. Hmm. They're not, particularly local ones. They wouldn't like you to say that out loud, but I think that that's true in, in every country where, the, where you're in a growing economy, right, or a developing economy is actually the better word. But what ends up happening is, right, is that some of those entrepreneurs come out of an entitled life, and if they've come out of an entitlement, they miss things, right? So they build things that they think, and they're, they're inveterate copiers as well. So what happens is while they're copying a model because they convince someone to give them, I'm going to pick a number, right, a million dollars, and they say, I'm going to build the X-named company for Thailand or for Indonesia or for Malaysia. And again, these are the, if someone does that, it means that they're not being really creative. They're trying to ride on somebody else's coattails. And I would say eight times out of ten, those companies fail, right? You even saw the Salmer brothers, right? Mm. They built Groupon in, in Germany. And that was probably their biggest win so far, right? They backed out of a bunch of stuff that they started doing in Southeast Asia, whether it was, you know, um, the taxi company that they did, the food delivery company that they did. It's, you know, sometimes copying is not the best way to do it. But what ends up happening is that the people that are less entitled see that happen and they see the opportunity. And those are where that's where the risk taking comes from. Hmm. And they say, if that's the way it's going to work, and if there's no stability necessarily or that the advertised stability in a big company actually isn't there, then why not just go out on my own and start something with my really well-educated or really hardworking or really hustling, as you said earlier, friends, and see if we can build something big. Because if we take two years when we're 22 or 23 years old and we fail, right, you can categorize failure any way you want, um, they can always go back and get another job. And when they go to apply for a new job and someone says them, what have you been doing for the past two years? They can say, well, we tried to build our own company hmm. and here's what we learned along the way. And here's why we'll be killer employees for you because of all this stuff that we've learned. So I don't think it necessarily gets in the way or prevents the risk takers from getting involved in a way. I think it encourages them because they see the potential and they see what they consider to be like highly desirable people to follow doing it. Succeeding or failing doesn't matter. And they say, that's the path I'm going to take. Yeah. Right? Because even in the old days, if you had a legacy family, you might have gone to work at, you know, Exxon or the, like if your family owned the Wall Street Journal, you might end up at the Wall Street Journal. But what if you were just bored with, and you, or you didn't care about news? You had to go do something. Mm. And you went, and do some, you went and did something else. And then if you got to be famous or successful, people that were less entitled would, cop, would go out and copy your actions. And I think that that's where a lot of the risk takers come from. But I don't think Steve Jobs himself, I don't think came out of a very, very wealthy family. It might have been stable, but they were not billionaires. And he built multiple companies into huge size. And I think that comes from the struggle. Right, right. The, struggle the struggle matters. And I think the struggle right. really matters. And I think people that struggle are the best risk, risk takers. Mm -hmm. There's no downside. I always say this. The people with the most, the people that are scariest, right, are the people with nothing to lose. Yeah. I love competing against people that feel entitled because I'm, I always know I'm going to beat them because they've got nothing to lose. I mean, I mean, they've got plenty to lose, right? Right, I right. Got... They're defensive. Yeah, very. And they're not really innovative because, again, when they go to try to convince somebody either in their family or, or in their circle of friends that something's going to work, they always go, hey, they used to do this in Europe. Let's do the same thing here. No one's done it yet. Right, right. Well, isn't that that's, that's what sort of America was built on and that whole sort of, you know, that, that nation was built on those strugglers who came from nothing really isn't it i mean you look at that i mean steve jobs's generation that whole generation there's a whole they, i mean I, I think it was in the uh, the book outliers by malcolm gladwell they're all sort of born within a year or two of each other right you've got steve jobs and you've got the guy from intel groves you know who was a hungarian immigrant or whatever and you've got that whole sort of generation of those effectively strugglers who came from immigrant exactly. families right exactly. nothing to lose you know those are the people you don't pick fights with. Exactly, because they're already down. Right. They've been they're down. as well. Yeah, exactly. They know the bottom. Yeah, I mean, and to be fair, not to use like the, the popular icon, but I mean, Steve Jobs never could have done what he did in 1997 if he hadn't been thrown out of Apple once, right? He was back to being a struggler.
And that was actually, I think, really powerful. But yeah, I like that whole concept of the people that are real strugglers are going to be your real innovators because they have to. Mm. And that's what we see in Asia a bit, isn't it? There's that sort of coming through where the sort of the, the apps and the businesses they're building are built for the purpose of solving a problem that these people have felt or faced, right? Yeah. Rather than just yeah. sort of, you know, I'm going to, you know, okay, there is that history of the people taking their daddy's money and making good use of themselves, right? Like the prodigal son type thing. But, you know, it's kind of like there is that whole generation of people coming through. Hopefully that will yield some really exciting developments in coming years. Yeah, I mean, on the margin, I think I'm much more likely to invest in someone that struggled to get somewhere rather than somebody who's entitled because the struggling male or, or female has nothing to fall back on. They, they have to succeed. Right. Whereas somebody with a sense of entitlement will just say, yeah, if this doesn't work, I'll just fall back. So it's fine. But again, even you see this in the U.S., right? Not, not, I don't want to beat a dead horse here. But what's his name? Evan Spiegel, the guy who runs um, Snapchat. Snapchat? Yeah. He was quoted as saying, you know, when he announced the IPO, he was, look, I got lucky. You know, I never had to struggle. I tried to start a bunch of businesses with, um, you know, with my fellow students and this one hit. But I never really had to struggle at anything. Right. Would and that you, just makes me lucky. Right. Would you invest in that guy? I don't – I honestly don't have enough information <laughs> and – and sure, and to be fair, I think just like everybody else, I didn't understand the whole concept of the ephemeral photo. Like I just didn't get it. I didn't understand why that was a big deal. Um, but I understand Snap and the Snapchat application a lot better now. I just don't know if those things are necessary. Like I'm not sure what what role it fills or what problem it solves rather than entertaining kids. And I don't know if that lasts for a long time. I don't know. Well, I don't think it makes. I don't think it makes a great ad platform because the, the people that are on it are too young and don't have disposable income. Um, I don't know. I just don't understand. Well, we'll see. We'll see. We'll only know by looking back with hindsight. We'll see. I yeah. mean, look at YouTube. I mean, I, I I think YouTube is for me is like that is. I know it's already established and it's been around for well years now. But for me, that's the future. That's where the future is for advertising and so on, right? So, agreed. Agreed. I think, and and look, you see a lot of really popular stuff right now, right? Like the thirty-second um, recipe guys and gals. I just don't think all that stuff lasts for that long because I think people who want to learn how to cook want to cook for more than thirty seconds. Right. So maybe maybe I'm missing that as a theme, but I just I don't understand it. Um, but I will say this: YouTube as a success story doesn't doesn't surprise me. I mean, when that guy whose name I can't remember, it was so long ago, from Microsoft, built the real player, mm. the real first video and audio player out there, um, you know, the whole concept was you can now broadcast yourself. I literally tried to do it back then because I thought that was a big idea. And I, when YouTube came out, I thought this is going to be it. This is really it. Yeah. And when, you know, when, um, when Google bought them and invested, what was it, a billion dollars or something in it? Everyone said it was insane, but that thing throws off a ton of money now. I, okay. I understand that business completely. I, I don't know. All right, surprises, Michael. Do we have a surprise this week? What have you got for yeah. us? And, and again, this the surprise really is more of a sarcastic surprise. It's like that's a big surprise, meaning yeah. I, I guess that, so, <laughs> so it's not a surprise. Ones. It's not a surprise, meaning you didn't know this, but here's some new information that's going to be useful to you. It's more like. You got to be kidding me! I can't believe that anybody really likes this. Anyway, not to call out anybody in particular, but you know, I read a lot of the tech press out here, and I think a lot of the—that's a big surprise—is going to come directly out of the tech press for as long as they continue to. This reminds me, in a way, I don't know if you read um, MacWorld magazine, but I think it used to be on the back page, or, or one of the back pages. But there was a writer who calls himself the Macalope, and you know, it's a cross between. <laughs> A Macintosh and an antelope. So it's a it's an animal. It's a mythical animal with a head that looks like a, an antelope. I mean, that looks like a Macintosh and has antlers coming out of it in the body of like a deer. Anyway, what what this guy does is he he goes through the Apple punditry and picks out stuff, and actually names names on people and says, I just can't believe they say this and get paid to say it. Um, and I was reading a story last week about a company called Dish Dash. Yeah. So Dish Dash is a really, <laughs> it's it's a really it's it's a it's a silly company I think, and I hope you don't mind me saying that. But the, their idea is they're going to provide 
lunches to people sitting at their desks. So they're going to dash a dish over to you um, in Singapore. And this is a business, I believe, that has been invested by, yeah, it has been invested by my favorite venture capitalist, the guys at 500 Startups, <laughs> um, you know, who are, who are continually not disappointing in the silliness in which they invest. But the point is that, you know, if you want to make a venture capital investment, you, like I said earlier, you want to make an investment that's going to give four and a half to five times your return. Dish Dash really only works if it does work. And I don't believe that it will actually. And the reason why this falls into the category of that's a big surprise. Two, one is I would be willing to bet you in two years this company doesn't exist in at least in its same shape or form that it is today. Two, the money that was invested in it, so there are going to be three things actually. The money that invested is just going to disappear. You might as well light it on fire. Um, and the third thing is it's in a market that's way too small. Mm. Okay, so the big surprise is it's not going to be a big surprise when this company goes away. And I'd say the one of the other things I want to say about it is in my notes I wrote down the person who wrote this company, who wrote this story for for this other company, must have a friend or somebody that works there because they're promoting this thing like it's some kind of tech revelation, and really it's just another way for restaurants to get more. It's just another take on restaurants trying to get more business. And unless I miss something in this, and I don't think I have, you know, again, it's not going to be a big surprise when this thing goes away. And I guess the final thing I want to say about it, unless you have any questions, is. Do they have? Do they have like any? Do the owners of this company have any cultural sensitivity at all around the words dish dash? What am I missing? I'll tell you. I'll tell you what you're missing in a second. If you type just the words dish, and I want to do it right now, dash, into a search engine. <laughs> okay, so dish dash the dish the images for dish dash are the traditional clothing for a Middle Eastern man. In other words, the long robes that they wear and the um, the headgear that's ah. it's covered by the the black thing. So you see this in Saudi Arabia and yeah. some of the in the UAE. That outfit is respectfully called a dish dash. Gotcha. So it just makes me wonder when they're naming. <laughs> Their company, whether they had, and you know, and there are plenty of, you know, Muslims in Singapore, in Indonesia, in Malaysia that right. should look, should look at the name of this company and just say, really, doesn't work, does it? They don't even have their own. They don't even have a .dot com domain name, right? They're a .dot biz. Are they a .dot biz? I mean, who uses .dot biz? <laughs> well, someone who's clearly not planning to be around for a while. Exactly. In fairness, there may be a few pivots there. But we don't know. I mean, that could apply to any business, right? I mean, any business can pivot and reinvent itself. Maybe they will. Maybe, maybe you know, maybe the seeds of greatness are in them. It well, could be. It, it could, could be. be. But then it, it begs the question, right? Even look at a company like Uber. Yeah. So it used to be called Uber Cab, I guess, or Uber Taxi. I can't even remember anymore. But Uber just means like what? Overall? Like I don't, I don't, you know, means like big or, or strong or overall, right? Uber. Yeah. Anyway. It could, they could switch into anything because the name of their company doesn't mean anything in the context of what they're doing except that they want to be really big. But like unless they go into Middle Eastern clothing or some kind of <laughs> – you know, or some kind of like Sharia finance, like I just don't think that the name of the company is really good for a pivot. Right. Huh. You know, and again, I try to tell – so Social C, right, just to get back to a company we were talking about earlier, the name of the company doesn't necessarily invoke – the exact business that they're in, which means that if they want to pivot, they can just pivot on the same platform. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's why food. Maybe that's why Food Panda didn't work. I just can't imagine pandas themselves being focused enough to do delivery. Right, but such a difficult business to make money in. Surely, I mean, that whole business of just get, becoming another outlet for restaurants. I mean, restaurants. The, the margins are so small for these guys. These you know, anyway, just to make money in that business. And we talked about this before, isn't it? that not even to own the the content, so to speak, that you're re that you're distributing. Right. And that's tough. I mean, just to make money out of that, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I can go through this whole article and just like, so for, for a restaurant partner, it's supposed to get you new business, right? But when, whenever you're paying for new business like that, so if you're discounting your stuff and like the stickiness of those new customers is not there and 
the the idea here is that they're going to cater like corporate events. Right. Yeah. And again, yeah. that's a great business if you want to run a catering business, but it's a lifestyle business. It's not right, an. Right. Right. It's not an. I'm not saying don't do it, but I'm just saying. You know, don't put it on Tech in Asia and tell me it's an investable business. They estimate, according to them, right, not according to me, they estimate that the corporate catering market, the whole thing, to be about, they say, Singapore dollars, 500 million, or USD, 350 million dollars. Hmm. It's tiny, yeah. right? And that's the whole market. So let's say they get, I don't know, 5%, 7% of the, of the market. It's nothing. Yeah. And that's and that's GMV. That's not profit. So it seems, it seems as well. I mean, the problem here is that I mean they're dealing with restaurants as well. I mean, or, <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, if I was a publisher and I wanted to sell books, I've got to go to Amazon because Amazon pretty much is like the main source of my income, right? As a publisher, that's where I'm going to get all my marketing. I want to get a big chunk of my sales through Amazon. However. Yep. If I'm a restaurateur, this dash knocks on my door. Yeah, all right. Well, you can give it a go. I mean, if you're not going to charge us any money for it, we'll we'll try it out. I mean, it's sort of <laughs> kite flying, isn't it? It's sort of you know, yeah. Exactly. I just don't understand why. It's first of all, I don't understand why this company gets funded, particularly in the context of all the other companies I see that are, have actual real cash flow. And will get funded and actually have margins. I mean, I see software software as a service companies or some software companies that I see have a 60 to 7% margin because you're just installing something on a remote server for someone that no installation for them, no maintenance. They just, they just pay you a fee either every month or once a year and it just drops right to your bottom line except for the sales call. So this thing where the food business itself, the margins are really thin and most of these companies pay something like 20 to 30% to companies like Dish Dash or Food Panda or any other similar company. They're paying away too much of their profits, and at yeah, some yeah. point, they're just going to get tired of paying it away, and they're just going to cancel. All right, so I'll put you on the spot then, Michael, because you brought it up, and an an addendum to the 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 final section. Then, if you if we parachuted you into Dish Dash, and you had a year in sort of some reality TV style show like Gordon Ramsay going in to the restaurant, but you were going into the startup, and you had to turn it around in a year without sort of going too much into the strategic plan, and I know it's really unfair, but that's why I put you on the spot. Fair enough. What would, you, what would be the one thing that you would do? I mean, what would be the pivot that you would push for here? How would you change things? Well, I'd focus on a much bigger market, first of all. You're telling me that the and, – and, and also, if you're going to do that, if you're not going to do that, use the catering market as what I call a Trojan horse into a much bigger business. Right. right so take over the entire restaurant experience. Right, because the restaurant experience is really under technologized. In other words, have a big vision. Don't just say you're gonna be you're gonna deliver food to people at their desk. Because think about this too. Most people don't work in what I'll call a live market facing environment. Right? So they can leave their desk to go to lunch. And frankly, most employees of big companies, when when noon or twelve thirty rolls around says, Let's get out of here. I gotta go get some yeah, food. Yeah. Starving and I cannot sit at my desk anymore. So actually the number of employees that are just sitting at their desk and having lunch is minimal and getting smaller, I think, because people wanna stand up. Their you know, their Apple Watch is telling them, stand up, take yeah. a walk. Yeah. Fitbit's telling them to do this, right? It's not saying sit at your desk and have a lunch. And you know, part of their idea is that there's gonna be each dish is going to come with some amount of data to track nutritional information. Mm. No way. I mean, these are people that have never seen a Stairmaster, right? They don't do a rowing machine. They're right. not running every day. And then you're going to tell me that they're going to now take, instead of ordering, you know, chicken McNuggets, they're not going to order <laughs> healthy. I just don't buy, I don't buy it because I haven't seen it. But even if that's the case, it's such a small market. I don't, it's, it could be a great business. And I tell those people all the time, you're running a great business. It's just not fundable. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is fine, so, right? I, but, you know, yeah. as long and, as you're and, not asking for money. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But what I would do if I had to sit inside this business is I'd, I'd have them focus on a much bigger market yeah, right. and, and to control the whole process because restaurants, their whole system is antiquated mm -hmm. and there is a place to apply technology to the food preparation, food delivery and food consumption business, and no one's really done that yet, right? Like Uber Eats is no different really than um, than Food Panda. Yeah, right. 
Right, except they have a POS, but that's really it. And I've seen the I've seen the Uber Eats POS in some restaurants here actually, and I'm starting to see some of the Uber Eats um, scooters riding around. But it's no different. They're still taking the same twenty percent or twenty five percent from the restaurant, and that's really expensive from a marketing perspective. Really expensive. All right, Dish Dash guys, how can they contact us to flame? <laughs> All direction towards Michael Waits, please. <laughs> yeah. And on one of my other favorite podcasts, the guy goes, yeah, just please call uh, please call the other guy. Anyway, please feel free to call me. You can find me on Twitter at Michael Waits if you have any comments. And if you want me to really pay attention, give me a hashtag of Asia Tech Podcast, and I'll respond to you directly or I'll respond to you in the follow-up section next week. Graham, thank you very much. Thank you. For, um, for talking. This was long tonight. It was good. Yeah. That was a really good, interesting subject. And Guys, don't forget to check out asiatechpodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss an episode. We're out every week. Yep. Thanks, Graham. Michael, catch you next week. Take it easy, man.